Welcome to the Education Endowment Foundation podcast entitled Evidence into Action. This podcast will welcome experts in the field of education from fantastic researchers with important things to say alongside a wealth of brilliant teachers and school leaders. Our mission is straightforward to tackle the most important educational topics and offer you plenty of evidence-based ideas to reflect upon and we hope to be able to put into action. The Education Endowment Foundation EEF for short, is an independent charity dedicated to breaking the link between family income and educational achievement. My name is Alex Quigley, the National Content Manager at the EEF, and I have the pleasure of being the host of this series and this second episode. This episode is entitled Managing Behaviour and Building Habits. We explore the evidence and insights that attend behaviour in schools while exploring the practicalities of remote teaching and our current lockdown with experienced school leaders. In this episode of the series, we'll talk first to Kirsten Mould, EEF content specialist for learning behaviours, who's also a school leader in Senko at Mary Webb School and Science College during a busy working week. We'll go on to speak to Harry Fletcherwood, edu author and associate dean at Ambition Institute, who draws upon his insights and research for his next book entitled Habits of Success. And then finally, we hear from the brilliant Jenny Thompson, serving school principal at Dixon's Trinity over in Bradford and executive principal at Dixon's Academy Trust, home to Bradford Research School. So let's get started. First, we're going to begin chatting to Kirsten. Hi, Kirsten. Hi, Alex. First, can you tell me a little bit about your current roles, plural? Uh, yes, and in fact, maybe go back slightly further to say that I started out as a key stage two teacher and taught for many years um, in various parts of the country in key stage two, and then more latterly found my way into key stage three science teaching. Um, and trained as a SENCO about three or four years ago, and I'm now sort of school SENCO. Guiding principle for me has always been looking at keeping social and academic threads intact, and that particular interest in in how pupils learn. And more latterly, taking on the role with the Education Endowment Foundation as their content specialist for learning behaviours. And that's enabled me to work with incredible teaching professionals and education academics, working as a bridge between the evidence and practitioners and really amplifying the voices of of teachers from the classroom. I have to say it's not the year I predicted, uh, imagined getting into schools all over the place, but really have still managed to meet so many um, incredible individuals. And in a sense, it's kind of focused the lens on what effective learning behaviours are both in school and now at home. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit more about that then? What are learning behaviours? Why are they particularly relevant for teachers right now? So we find ourselves at the moment in a period of remote learning again. Um, So many children are working at home. And I I guess the first thing we want to know is that they're safe and well. And when we're setting work, we want them to have a go. If an online lesson, live or recorded, is timetabled, we want them to log in and interact. And it's quite interesting to think carefully about what that involves for a child at home. So just to log on and interact, we want them to be in a routine. We want them to be able to get up out of bed and get started. Perhaps there's a bit of goal setting in there, time management, certainly. They're finding a suitable space, perhaps negotiating with a sibling or a parent on equipment and space in the home. 
Um, we're hoping that they might put their phone away, turn the TV off, um, be able to listen to the teacher and persevere with a difficult task. And that's really challenging, isn't it, at home? And the self-regulation around when things go wrong and celebrating when things go right is really important. So if you break those skills down, it really focuses our attention on how we're setting work and what those learning behaviours are, how we can be explicit about them. The EEF guidance on um, improving behaviour. A learning behaviour is something that's necessary for a person to learn effectively. And usually we talk about the group setting of the classroom and, and now at the moment we're, we're talking about home. And I think that doesn't work in isolation. We're thinking about behaviour, we're thinking about metacognition and self-regulation, we're thinking about social and emotional regulation um, and, and also particular areas around supporting pupils with special education educational needs and disabilities and also working with parents and successful learning behaviours rely on bringing all of this together, wrapping it around every child, really knowing our children, building those relationships and there are so many debates around behaviour. It's fascinating always to hear the breadth of views from colleagues and from observers of the profession and I think remote learning is bringing those learning behaviours back into sharp focus. Okay, that's great. So we recognise the classroom in and of itself is a complex domain or all those factors you talked about. But then we've got now this new routine, new habit with lockdown. What does the research evidence indicate would be best to support pupils to learn in a remote environment? I guess the first thing to say is that we haven't been in this situation before, have we? But looking at the evidence that we can get, and the EEF did a rapid evidence assessment, um, looking at systematic reviews and meta-analysis, and it indicates some principles for us to consider. So thinking around teaching quality being more important than how lessons are delivered. So pedagogy trumps the medium. And, you know, thinking through how that would look online, uh, clear explanations, building on prior learning, you know, how do we scaffold, how do we model, um, allow for independent practice and also feedback. We know that access to technology is crucial. You know, the, the, the debates around laptops and data packages are really essential, but that's not sufficient to prevent gaps from widening. We need to think about peer interactions, keeping that connectedness to the classroom, connectedness to each other, to the school, to their teacher, and supporting pupils to work independently. Um, I think there is an incredible amount um, of experimentation and effective monitoring going on out there where people are looking at their practice and really trying to do the best thing, but it's, it's not easy. Keeping things as simple as possible. I've seen teachers using checklists and scaffolds to model the work. Um, I know that some schools are deploying their teaching assistants to be link adults with particular pupils, you know, a an email buddy system or calling home, checking in and helping build those routines. And I think some people are really trying to make some of these learning behaviours explicit um, when they're doing recordings or they're doing live lessons, supporting pupils to work independently. But to say keeping it simple, it's not simple, is it? There's so many things to consider. Well, in terms of simplicity, um, I mean, next question is about offering advice for parents. I say that as a parent um, with two children at the moment, um, homeschooling. Um, I'm very lucky that my partner um, manages most of the day, but I still 
um, have my involvement and, and just recognize the challenges, even with you know the children you know best in the world. What advice would you offer parents who are supporting you know those positive learning behaviors at home at the moment? Uh, advice that's that's a tricky one isn't it I mean firstly I would congratulate parents and carers incredible efforts in supporting their children's education they have my complete admiration Um, it's complex in a classroom isn't it Uh, a principle for teachers is knowing individual pupils building those relationships and I guess that's where parents have have a a trump on us they they know their children well Um, advice that's difficult routines are really important they're important for behavior they're important for our social emotional learning and finding that new rhythm for your family and really trying to stick to it um, seems seems a good way forward um, help around restructuring physical environment so finding a space supporting the children in having equipment and, and removing distractions and managing their time you know really having a good mix and sh- ensuring they have breaks and exercise in amongst the learning that they're doing and I think helping children to manage their motivations and their and their emotions. This is a really tricky time at home, and we can only imagine the sort of the, the competition, I guess, for space, for time, for devices. Never mind um, any illness that might be in the family. And, and modelling our coping strategies ourselves is really important. Valuing everyday talk you know everyday reading exercise you know a daily walk whatever whatever's happening in the home cooking and praising we kind of look for those positives in the classroom and if we can catch catch children doing things right and praising them that's a that's a really positive thing to share um and reading there's always lots of reading that can happen in the in the home any reading whether it's books leaflets recipes and asking questions making predictions sharing that joy of reading and I think really valuing just those everyday tasks everyday activities that happen in the home and keeping that talk going with with your children Um, but uh, yeah absolute admiration for for all of the work that's going on in homes around the country at the moment. Thanks, Kirst. There's so much in that. I think I'll need to replay that one um, and listen again. Some of the points really echo for me in terms of my family experience, just that the praise um, seems to stand out for my children. I think this week my daughter's a little bit brittle. I think she's missing her friends and and missing being in school. And um, there's been a couple of kinds of points where she's just been that little bit less resilient with a, with a challenge. So, you know, with her ICT work, she's kind of, you know, got stuck and, and actually needed some support, needed some praise. And just actually those coping strategies that you mentioned, just stopping, kind of coming back down from that kind of emotion and just question step by step. OK, what can we do here? And um, yeah, the kind of the, the challenges of being a parent just kind of accelerated by the challenge of having to learn and, and to kind of get through the school day. Lots on for parents at the moment. So if we move on from supporting parents, actually thinking back once more to teachers who are doing an amazing job at the moment. So we often have a concern for new teachers, you know, teachers who've just begun the profession and, and all the challenges they face. But of course now, you know, we're grappling with you know, behaviour in a lockdown, all the nuances that you've already discussed. What advice would you offer teachers, new and experienced, who are struggling to make remote teaching, remote learning work? I think 
there are three things I would draw out in the classroom. And I think those three things are still relevant with, with learning from home. Um, I think we, we can teach learning behaviours. That's the first one. And that can be really small details and those daily details matter. The second one is around relationships, really knowing our pupils, knowing the hooks for our pupils, being able to contact home, looking at, at listening at their work, looking at their work that little bit longer. Um, but those relationships still matter. And finally, um, you matter, teachers matter. So talk to colleagues, look at wider practice, share those challenges, but also celebrate the successes. Thank you, Kirsten. Uh, thank you for your work in all of your roles at the moment, um, teacher, SENCO, um, content specialist. I really recommend, if you want to know more about learning behaviours, if you go onto the EF website and type in learning behaviours, Kirsten's written some really accessible blogs. There's some um, videos and resources to go with that. Thank you, Kirsten. Thanks, Alex. Next, we'll move on to Harry Fletcher Wood, um, our expert, our author on behaviour, author on pupils' habits, teacher habits, um, which I think is really crucial at this time. Hi, Alex. Yeah, I'm a history teacher who then became head of professional development and then kind of kept digging and I'm still going on down the rabbit hole in terms of what should we be asking teachers to do and uh, how can we help them to do it well. So I currently work at Ambition Institute where I lead the Teacher Education Fellows Programme where we try and help um, teacher educators do their jobs well. And I'm also studying for a PhD looking at teacher behaviour change and I've spent three long, bitter years writing a book about uh, behaviour change in schools. Just ask a, a, the inspiration for that book. Was it a kind of your own personal experience uh, and just reflecting and thinking, right, I'd really like to capture that? Was it learning new evidence after you left the classroom? What, what was your inspiration? It's it's the combination. So part of the book and in the introduction, I sort of reflect on um, the the quite innate processes that I followed or the, the things that I tried to do to manage behaviour in the classroom as a new and as a more experienced teacher. And then partly what I changed as I read more while I was still in the classroom and then leavening that with stuff that I've read over the, the subsequent years um, where I've had more more time to read to try and understand, well, OK, what, what does the evidence tell us about how, when and why people change their behaviour and how could teachers use this? So try to bring together that, that practical experience with um, the, the research. So I think we can all agree 2020, you know, as we move into the start of 2021, really unique year for any teacher in terms of behaviour change. Well, it's been forced upon us in, in countless ways. Um, I know you've had lots of experience working with schools in the last year and, and you have reflections. What, what have you seen as those challenges in terms of behaviour and learning, given this kind of massive change to our daily routine? I think the thing that will always stay with me was that sense of, OK, everything closed. We started in schools with huge amount of imag imagination and effort, put quite a varied uh, set of supports in place. Some schools did packs, some schools went live, some schools did asynchronous online, you know, whatever it was. Um, they tried all these things and it wasn't very long before teachers started turning around and saying, turning around and saying, I'm, I'm 
kids aren't turning up to the lesson kids aren't responding to uh the stuff that we're sending home um and clearly the, there are so across the country as a whole there were so many factors at, at work so i talked to teachers who said you know nobody in that household has a device and there are four children there so of course it's difficult for them but there were also children who had devices um but perhaps didn't want to engage and it was as though a lot of the supports that, that were in place we, we we'd come to believe that you know students want to be here most of them and, and they, they're going to work hard and then when they're not in their accustomed routines to realize actually something whether it's motivation whether it's self-regulation something else uh, is not there and so we're really struggling to reach our students and particularly the students who, who need us most how how important would you say routines are then? Do you think it's it's the routine that supports the motivation? Um, is it reciprocal in terms of the routines important to the teacher as much as the pupil? I would say if if I were inviting teachers to do one thing, it would be to build habits rather than to build motivation. Motivation is is fickle and it's specific. So you know, I could be motivated to study in maths, but not in French. I could be motivated to do quadratic equations, but not trigonometry. Um, I could be motivated on Tuesday and not on Friday. And if you imagine as a teacher, you're trying to, to build all the students in your classroom to be motivated at the same point to do the same thing for the same period of time, you've set yourself a task which is almost impossible. It is more feasible, I think, to help students build habits. And so instead of saying, I'm going to motivate students to study Act 3, Scene 2 and realise why it's exciting, I'm going to help students build the habit of studying hard whenever we open a new scene in a play. Um, now, clearly, motivation is really important to, to that because you need some sort of motivation to start students on building a habit. But habits are the key. And then once you've built a habit, the, the beautiful thing about them is um, they they remain. Uh, so if I have a habit of going for a jog every Saturday morning, I will go even if I'm tired and even if it's raining, whereas if I'm relying on my motivation, it will come and go and then eventually it will just go. And likewise for our students, if their habit is always to sit, get home, have something to eat and then do a bit of studying or always to, to uh, listen to the speaker during a discussion, then they'll keep doing it when they're tired, when they're demotivated, whatever it is. Do you think... Uh... I can really appreciate the the importance of habits. Do you think just in practical terms that if pupils are working at home away from the teacher, it's it's harder to build those habits because of the, the, the lack of that kind of direct, you know, kind of contact in the moment? It's, it's definitely harder because we know that uh, what among the things that support habits are reminders and feedback and accountability so if i'm sending my students home a load of work and i then i'm not going to be able to pick up on what they've done for a week and i'm not going to be able to see them face to face and they know that that's a lot more difficult but i'd also say i'd, I'd ask are we trying to build habits in the first place or are we working more on motivation uh, punishment reward um and, and are we are we going through the process of asking ourselves, what habit do I want to see? What's the, the specific action? What are the cues and prompts going to be? Have students planned those cues and prompts for what, where they're going to act and when? Have I planned a follow-up, the best follow-up that I can manage? So before we say, well, so yes, habits are harder to build when students are at home, but are we doing all the things that, that we know help build habits? 
let's do those before we start, you know, reminding ourselves how difficult it is to, to uh, influence students when we don't see them. Is there a good example you could offer in, in terms of serving up those cues? Um, it might be kind of, you know, a home learning task. It might be a kind of asynchronous learning uh, just to just to encapsulate that. So so um, let's say that I'm planning an entire um, half term of study and there's loads of different tasks and, you know, so on and so on. Um, the first question is going to be how how can I narrow it down to make the action as clear and specific as possible? If I give my students a dozen different actions and a load, load of things in a pack, it, it's very easy to be paralysed by how many different things and having to decide where to start. So being super clear with them, what's the priority? How long should you be spending on it? And modelling it for them, showing them examples, not examples, whatever it is, ideally practising with them before you ask them to work independently. And then working through a plan with them to say, okay, where and when are you going to act? Pick, pick yourself a trigger. Um, ideally, pick yourself a trigger that's um, easily discernible and, and is inevitable. So mealtimes are a really good one, right? Like, you know, start work immediately after breakfast. And then hopefully something will go off in their head, you know, have breakfast, what do I need to do now? And then thinking about what's this mechanism of feedback reward. And that might just be, you know, um, uh, putting something on a virtual learning environment or emailing the teacher when you've done it. It might be talking to a peer about it, but putting in something that's going to be the, the cue and the reminder to to take the action. That's really helpful. I, what I've been struck by, Harry, is how in talking about learning and behaviour, you've actually focused on things like routines, on habits and cues, and actually not on misbehaviour, not on, you know, kind of where seemingly the debate always seems to go when we talk about behaviour. It seems to be really polarised. It, you know, it's either zero tolerance or it's restorative practice, and, and there seems to be no, no nuance in between. Uh, what's your perception of the kind of de behaviour debate and how helpful are they? Well, I can answer the last bit uh, most easily. I'm not sure they're hugely helpful, particularly because I'm, I'm not sure how many people are convincing anyone else of anything. Um, I, I, I don't think for a moment... Uh, that a student is going to come good if you just um, give them more detentions or suspensions or exclusions or whatever it is. Um, but I also don't think for a moment they're going to come good if you just sit down and have a nice conversation. There are no consequences for their action. And I think most teachers you know, recognise that in practice and, and try and blend those two things. And I, I would be concerned about any school that didn't have uh, a, a pretty fair balance between those two things so that a student both understands what they should be doing and realizes that you know that the, there are going to be sort of pressures on them if they don't do it but more broadly i'd say um if if you if you go into a school and ask you know what's the behavior policy um what's the what's the classroom management policy you quite often get pointed to a sort of you know a list of c1 c2 c3 or you know conversation with form tutor conversation of head of year so on and so on um and what you don't get shown so often is a kind of thing where it's like, okay if if you do x what's the head of year of the form tutor ever going to do with you and to me that process needs to be breaking down what has caused the behavior and how are we going to change when students are already in habits even when we first meet them they've, they've had some experience of dealing with authority dealing with peers and if their response to being asked to do something is to say well i don't want to do that 
what are we going to do with them to help them form a more positive habit? So that might be thinking about the cue. Maybe I, I need to ask a student in a different way. It might be working with them on the response, modeling a response, practicing the response. And my take would be if we focus on those habits that we want students to have, and if we see student misbehavior as an instance of uh, current undesirable habits and the need for more habit formation, a lot of the behavior debate is going to fall away because you won't have to worry about sanctions very much. They're never going to go away entirely. But but your issue will become, how can I help students to form the habits that they need to form? That's really helpful and actually much more practical than the kind of the bombast that you hear, you know, and, you know, understanding, you know, the kind of those factors that determine behavior, shaping them, establishing routine and habits that all feels really you know pr pragmatic and practical on that score you know we recognize that to implement changes to behavior in, in the ways you've described you need you know the whole village the whole school kind of you know working in unison on this and having a shared language are there any uh, schools and or ingredients of whole school change that you think are, are quite common um, that you've kind of met in terms of schools or the evidence or, or combination so I'm lucky enough to work with with a really smart bunch of teacher educators on the teacher education fellows program that I work on. And what I see them them go through a process is is a moving away from if you're appointed head of CPD, your first thing that you try and do is, is you sort of you run the inset, you organize the staff training whenever and whenever that is. And actually you move away from that to to look at teacher change as as and just another facet of uh, behavior change and so okay training is part of it because you're going to want to explain and model and practice um, some new technique or some new habits somewhere but actually if you want teachers to change their practice and you run a great training session well great you know they walk out of the door and then they've got to do their marking they've got to do this and, that, and it just goes and so if you want teachers to change their behavior you have to start thinking about okay what are the prompts what are the cues how am i making this easy how am i reinforcing uh, that most people are doing this so you might want to do it too um and so those uh, essentially i invite uh, anyone listening who is responsible for changing teacher behavior or encouraging teachers to do anything to think about the same things that we need to think about with students what are the cues what are the prompts what's the action what how do we help people to do them rather than anything else so there's something there around just thinking more broadly about the psychology of people as an, and behavior change would you say that's that's fair exactly it's it's you know to, it's school leadership well and almost any endeavor other than things that are purely technical are about the, the psychology of human behavior and about helping people to change. Um, a brilliant book on this, uh, Switch by Chip and Dan Heath, and they they make this case very cogently that we often see change as a people problem, um, but it's usually not a people. So we, we ask people to do something and then we ask them again, and then we start saying, well, you know, they're, they're lazy or they don't want to change or you know, whatever it is. Um, and it may be true there are lazy people out there for some things but most people are going to be much more willing to go along if you make the change as easy as simple as clear as possible you remind them to do it and you you encourage them by saying well look most people are doing it here's a role model who's done it um so that that's the kind of line of thinking that i think is productive and a lot more enjoyable 
uh, in terms of uh, working with teachers and working with students. So that, that leads nicely to my last question, which is about that point about simple and, clar- and clear. So what is the one thing about behaviour and learning that you would want every teacher to know? So anytime you want students or teachers to do something or anytime you see students doing something you don't want them to do, the question is, what's their mental model and what are the prompts that are causing their behaviour? So when a child does something wrong the 10th time and you've told them not to do it nine times previously, it's easy to reach for a detention. And sometimes that might be the right thing to do. But the thing that's going to change their behaviour long run is identifying what do they want? What's prompting their behaviour? And then working with them to come up with a more productive response to that situation and then to make that more productive response a habit. That's really helpful, Harry. And you just say, once again, big thank you for sharing those insights. I know they've been gleaned from the classroom, but also from lots of expert reading you've undertaken and then working with those colleagues as well who, who are doing that work in schools. So it's been really helpful and practical. And I think you've gone past some of the unhelpful headlines and got to real practical, useful uh, exemplification. Big thank you. Thanks, Alex. Okay, so now I want to welcome Jenny Thompson. Jenny's serving school principal at Dixon's Trinity and executive principal at Dixon's Academies Trust. Um, over in Bradford, I know Dixon's um, have schools in Yorkshire and are also moving into the Northwest. Um, and it'd be really great to get insights into um, practices and approaches, approaches to managing behaviour and building habits. I think first, just to say uh, hello to you, Jenny. Hi, Alex. Uh, and I just want to um, find out a little bit more about your background in teaching and about, about your school. Okay, that's a, an excellent place to begin. So I'm Jenny, like you said, I'm a serving school principal at Dixon's Trinity Academy in Bradford. So you can imagine what the last uh, few weeks of my life have been like. Um, I'm also executive principal at Dixon's Academy's Trust, where I work across primary and secondary. And my main role is really leading on curriculum. But behind that, I'm also a very proud ex-Senko, which might inform more of my thinking than it should. And of course, before anything else, I'm an English teacher. I'm also a DfE behaviour advisor. And just so you know, we're coming, um, just coming out of having been snowed in here. And as such, I've got my toddler with me and I'm seven months pregnant. So if you fancy an insight into what real life leadership as a woman looks like, this might be a good place to begin. Jenny, can I ask... Why at Dictions you put so much emphasis on meticulously crafting your culture? Without a really strong culture, irrespective of how successful strategy appears in design or in evidence, it will absolutely go squandered. Budgets will be washed away. It'll look like interventions aren't working. Your evidence base becomes all muddy. Teachers will be left to think that we as individuals are ineffective and it might all have the single route because We are ultimately responsible for creating a culture as leaders. That means teachers can teach and students can learn. And then we have to sustain it every single day. And that, as we know, can sometimes be the problem. Leaders are often really prideful of their intelligence and sustaining culture is is really not an intellectually sophisticated daily endeavor. It's about being willing to do the really mundane tasks. I can list for you the, the leaders I've seen, you know, cleaning a suit jacket or wiping up the tables or sorting out a wee one who's really upset in year seven or whatever it is. And 
finding the energy to maintain those expectations every single day and caring unconditionally. We often refer to it as Sisyphean and that it's really, really unglamorous and it's about being honest about that. And of course, school culture and creating school culture and creating routines and creating habits is about so much more than just behaviour. Is there something about, about, about the language that you choose to focus on in terms of um, behaviour, expectations, aspirations that you think, you know, you can describe, you know, how that, how that looks and sounds like a Dixon's Trinity? Oh, that would be my pleasure. And um, I really, it comes back to the kind of first point that I believe it's absolutely impossible to deliver our mission as an individual. You know, as teachers, as educators, as leaders, as children, as families, we all have moments of vulnerability because we're real people. We get sick, we are tired, we have families of our own. And that's why this sense of overcommunication and shared language matters. The clarity with which expectations are shared will decide the proportion that is daily dependent on you as a leader and how much you can cultivate through your team. Clarity creates an aligned team and an aligned team sustains culture. And sometimes when I talk about this, um, I'm almost hesitant because I'm not sure people totally understand that we include the children in that sense of team. We include our students. Put simply, all schools have cultures where they are not intentional, the systems can get lost and communication becomes about compliance. Where they are really intentional and designed, saying the same things over and over again is reinforcing and supportive. And eventually the saying can become a different kind of communication, more about a shared language and a, and a shared sentiment, but always there just the same in case anything or anyone needs to hear it. I'll give you a worked example of this at Trinity. For example, we raise our hands for silence. Now that is not novel, it is not our idea, like lots and lots of things in our school. In the morning on a, on a typical pre-COVID uh, pre day, the whole school mills around our noisy heart space and it is really, really noisy. In that heart space we eat, that's where the lockers are, where we sit together for morning meeting and hands go up at 8.03 in readiness for an 8.05 start. Those pedantic timings are really intentional. They prevent a drift. And every teaching day of the year, we put our hands up at 8.03 and the wall of noise in that, in that heart space falls to silence. It is both uh, uh, in an intentional designed way to begin our day on time, but it's also a piece of theatre. It's a culture writ large. It's about having those shared habitual experiences. While the students are all in morning meetings, staff are in morning practice. Because our culture is really strong, there are only a couple of staff leading all of the children. Everyone else is working on our routines framed through role play. This is designed to build consistency. And remember, it could have a behavioral focus. It could be about transitions. It could have a teaching and learning focus. It could have um, how, to, how to speak to um, our families. You know, it's, it's a very broad understanding of what routine really means and the expectations around it. But it is also so much more than that. It facilitates cohesion through trust as a team, through vulnerability, and ultimately, and perhaps most importantly, through humor. We can strip away absolutely everything else, all of the theorizing, all of the logic, and call it what it is. It's just a fun way for the team to spend time together at the start of the day. It's a really great way to become better, but also to develop the relationships that are a foundational prerequisite to what Lencioni calls constructive conflict. If we can laugh together as a team, 
then we can challenge each other because everyone has already played the fool at some point and happily not in front of a child. As an example, our wonderful vice principal, Fran, who will be really embarrassed if she listens to this, that I've used her, her name and <laughs> talking about her. But our, she, she, she's really wonderful. She is one of those really golden people who just has exceptional leadership of children. I, I absolutely fully believe that if she got on a bus in a big city where she knew no one and there were kids messing about and she, she stood up and spoke to them, she would have them in a moment. So it would be very easy for Fran not to follow the expectations or routines and doubtlessly still have exceptional outcomes. But that's not what she does. She is the strongest advocate and the strongest model of our routines because that means that the new ITT a couple of doors down is then mirroring her and the children know that reliance on routines isn't a sign of struggle, just an expectation, a consistent expectation and a fair expectation. I think I, I really like the example um, of Fran, actually, because it captures so much around the power that, you know, that teachers have and that, you know, having experience and knowing the school and knowing the routines and having a language. And actually, sometimes deputy heads or subject leaders or, or the head teacher, the principal, they actually have a lot of tacit power and language, and yet it's not evenly shared so new teachers join a school and they don't get the same respect they don't follow the same routines I, i've been really lucky to visit dixon schools and found that there's a real intentional sense of routine and and the caricature of you know a silent corridor or silence what you described is is that you have both you have places where there's noise you know that heart space you described and yet then really intentional about you know we move to lessons in quiet and that's not about stifling that's about just respecting having really strong routines and getting ready to learn and to listen and to listen to other pupils as, as much as to listen to the teachers so I think in your exemplification you've kind of broken through some of the caricatures that I think attend behavior that aren't very helpful and I, my, my one other reflection and and this is really interesting that I've seen it in lots of different types of successful schools where some schools who have a project-based learning approach, some schools have a, who are deemed very traditional, you've got a really intentional language and you've changed it and you've created your own language and that adds clarity. Um, and, and it's really interesting that a culture can just be born and, and created around that real explicit language and, and the, you know, it isn't just a poster on the wall. It's something that's lived and it's a habit and it's a routine. Uh, one of the things I recognize, I've walked around the school and, and, and what spaces offer you and what routines offer you in terms of managing behavior, building a real positive culture. But of course, we've all been shunted into a new set of habits that, you know, for all intents and purposes, we probably wouldn't have asked for in terms of remote teaching. Um, what can you say about how teachers and yourself and you've adjusted to, to lockdown and, and this experience and, and have you tried to establish new and, you know, kind of supportive habits for learning um, given this new context? Um, I think I am going to hideously disappoint in my response because really at Dixon's Trinity, what we've done is lent into pre-existing systems to yeah. address the, the current challenges. And that means that our, our systems are, we, we might have amplified them, we might have shifted timings, we might have, some of the infrastructure that sits around them might have changed a wee bit, but it's all really familiar to our children. And that 
for us is generating the, the kind of safety and um, reciprocity that we know we need to sustain exceptional progress over this period of, of really odd working practices for all of us. I mean, there is nothing about what teachers are doing at the moment that is in any of our job descriptions. <laughs> and the more we can kind of acknowledge that and, and support one another, the better. For our culture, as with our curriculum, we start from the needs of our most vulnerable. Our high expectations shape our learning habits and crucially our pastoral offer. We don't lower our expectations for students, but we will absolutely enhance the support they need to receive, to be successful. Doing this in collaboration with our families is critical. We have a dual expectation that support will be put in place preventatively for students who need it, but also if that difficulties arise, sanctions are accompanied by helpful action. There's never sort of isolated sanction. Any student may need support at any point, and sometimes this can be as small as a conversation. What we have learned at Trinity is that it's those really little things that matter. And you know, in our school, we are unafraid, and I'm really unafraid to talk about the love we share as a community that shapes our communication with children. You know, the method is the message. We know that learning to follow our drivers is a journey as high in expectations as our curriculum, and we don't make limiting presumptions based on our students' data-based characteristics. Instead, we focus on developing our students' intrinsic motivation, wanting to develop the learning habits so you can work really hard and make lots of progress needs to be really deeply held desire because it asks so much of children. We over-rationalize so that the students always know why. We tell the students that we can't do it for them, but we will, we will absolutely do it with them. Being clear with the children and making sure they always know the purpose that sits behind our decisions or expectations means that we can move far beyond compliance. Just as clarity is needed for staff, so too students. So if I was to try and encapsulate just lots of the insights there, there's something about managing behaviour comes from a real hard thinking, a clarity of what your culture is. And, and, and the school culture is born of routines, of language and practising those intentionally, explaining those, you know, sharing those. One thing you talked about is, you know, supporting teachers and, and, and culture being inextricably linked to pupil outcomes. And one of the more recent um, research studies I've liked from Professor Matthew Kraft and colleagues over in the US is how in positive school cultures, you see teachers overcome that initial plateau after, you know, three, four, five years, and they keep on improving. In a, in a pithy, kind of concise way, can you give an insight to, say, your NQT self? If you were to give them, you know, simple, accessible advice on managing behaviour and building those habits, what would you say to your NQT self? Oh, I do not want to be in a room with my NQT self, Alex, but I will do this for you. <laughs> so I would say, listen, learn from the experts around you. Always be willing to be better informed. I would say it isn't stupid to like talking to children. It isn't stupid to like listening to their thoughts and their stories, because that is behavior for learning it opens the channels of trust and reciprocity and makes your opinion and your good opinion matter to your students you know set your culture setting it is creating the space for progress to happen 
Thank you, Jenny. It's been brilliant to get that window on your school and the thinking and and the culture and how that's developed and grown. I think the nuance and and the subtleties of all of that it's got me thinking. And I think I'll I'll go away from this podcast and just you know, think think that bit more and try and get past you know some of those caricatures that we hear about managing behaviour in all schools and and the headlines we see. That was that was really helpful. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. So time for some final thoughts on managing behaviour and building habits. What shone out for me from those different interviews was the research and practice from school leaders that really emphasised the importance of behaviour in all its complexity, both the cues and language and routines and culture needed for building new habits, positive routines, and, and the unique special language and climate we create as school leaders. I think what also stood out, the complexity of behaviour and how it attends motivation and and emotion really came to the fore. And of course, in our unique circumstances where pupils and teachers are wrenched out of the typical settings and routines, these emotions and motivations really come to the fore. And there was a real pragmatic focus on routine habits, positive language, and a focus on a culture of learning. And I think what became clear is how positive behaviours is a measure of routine, it's a measure of practice and support for teachers and structure, but also it seems to get far beyond the the behaviour debates that we see get bogged down where we have this polarising notion of zero tolerance or restorative practice. And what you hear from the likes of Kirsten and Jenny and from the schools that Harry's worked with are the reality, the nuance and the complexity of managing behaviour and that it's everybody's job. And yet on a simple level, it is about routine habits. It's about a shared language. It's about structures. And as we reflect upon lockdown, again, these become really useful and essential for schools at this time. My final word then is thanks to Kirsten, Harry and Jenny, but also thank you to the school leaders and teachers grappling with managing behaviour and supporting pupils and colleagues at this really challenging time. And do subscribe to the EEF Evidence Into Action podcast. And if you want to know more from the colleagues that you've heard on the podcast, have a search for Dixon's open source videos on YouTube. You can also take a look at Harry's book. And if you go to his blog on improvingteaching.co.uk, there's lots of accessible writing from Harry resources that are really, really great for both teachers and school leaders. And if you want to find out more about Kirsten's work, if you go on the EEF website and search learning behaviours and also dig into the COVID-19 support resources page, you'll find lots of the work that Kirsten's led. Thanks again and see you next time.